Last week we, we looked at, in, in general terms, we were looking at, uh, at how Christians, uh, how we engage with culture, uh, the, the tide that is flowing aggressively away from Christianity in the world, and, and, and we looked at how, uh, we, how we could interact with that, how we could just, in general terms, share uh, our Christian faith and, and, and Christian principles and that. And we thought about this idea of how to love across difference, how to decisively affirm truth while at the same time just compassionately sitting uh, with people and hearing their stories. Well, this week I want to ask you a question that will make a little bit more sense in about 25 minutes. Some of you like 25 minutes. Yeah, we'll see. But, you know, 25 minutes. Who are the Thessalonians in your life? We asked this question uh, probably five or six years ago, we're asking it again today because if you don't have some, uh, you need to get some in your life. Little story. On the 26th of November 2011, NASA launched uh, the world's most advanced scientific laboratory into space. It's kind of like a, a little tiny car-sized robot lab, lab called Curiosity. It marked hopefully a new Epoch, a new era of space exploration. NASA had spent just a lazy $2.5 billion on this project. Uh, in, in, in an agency at the time, back then, NASA was kind of beset with budget cuts and cancellations and people were questioning the whole space program uh, endeavour. This mission would now, this little curiosity mission would now set uh, the tone, the atmosphere, the credibility uh, for further ongoing missions. It was the first astrobiological mission uh, since we sent, since the 1970s when we sent the Viking probes. Anyone remember those things? Like a ceiling fan with a Polaroid camera out into space. Yeah. John Holdren, the top science advisor or advisor to President Barack Obama, summed up Curiosity's mission saying, this is an enormous step forward in planetary exploration. Nobody has ever done anything like what we're trying to achieve here. It's fair to say that NASA had uh, a fair bit riding on this. The future of scientific space exploration was all kind of hinging on how this little mission went. For eight months, Curiosity just booted across the galaxies, travelling through space at a, at a mere 566 million kilometres before piercing Mars's atmosphere, travelling at about 20,921 kilometres an hour. They like to be precise at NASA. That's 17 times the speed of sound this little thing booted into Mars's atmosphere. And then this little probe begins its descent in an event engineers at NASA called the Seven Minutes of Terror. Oh, there's Wally. I was going to liken him to the other probe. I forgot I hadn't taken that out. Kids aren't here, it doesn't matter. For seven minutes... Everyone at Mission Control held their collective breath as Curiosity uh, passed through this pink haze and onto where its Mars landing was hopefully going to be. And then from there it would transmit back pictures back to Pasadena. Now the rover is on its own as it goes on this descent. And years of research, hours of simulation, the $2.5 billion that's been poured into this mission all hung on 
whether they would actually receive news from Mars. In the way of this, though, is 79 separate pyrotechnic uh, detonations that have to take place to release things like exterior ballast weights, open parachutes, uh, set up heat shields, detach uh, the craft's back shell, jettison some more parachutes, among a few other functions. It's kind of like delving into your wife's handbag. You never kind of know what's going to go on there and what's going to happen. And then, and then it would just gently bump into the ground there on Mars. A failure of any of these would have doomed the landing and the whole mission would have been compromised and the whole thing just left to lay to waste in the red dust of Mars. And then even with that seven minutes of terror uh, over and out of the way, there's a, there's a 14 minute delay as the pictures kind of come from Mars uh, back down to, to NASA control. So 21 minutes in total that they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And NASA engineers had little to do during Curiosity's descent, but, but wait anxiously and wait for news to come back from the red planet. They know Curiosity is there. They know she's on the ground. But what, what state is this little robot, this little lab in? Has she survived the trials of the descent? The hostile environment of Mars. Sounds dramatic, doesn't it? There's so much that could go wrong. And now they are desperate to know that the mission has been a success. And Mark, here is our great big moment. I've embedded this into my PowerPoint to make Mark's life easy, hopefully. Uh, here's how uh, the NASA engineers and that respond to Rover's landing when the news from the red planet finally makes its way back to Pasadena, NASA. There's, there's three minutes of this. They're just going nuts, but we don't have time now. Um, and you want to see them when the little thumbnails come back from Mars. They just totally lose their minds. It is, it's just crazy stuff. However, when your life, and my life was wrapped up in that video clip for a little bit there, when your life is so tired and invested into something, you just you celebrate good news. If you could all turn around, don't do it, and see Mark right now, he'd be like, yeah, I got it done. You celebrate good news. You move to tears. You're overcome with joy. Even like grown men in that clip are just hugging each other. Self-awareness is gone. Uh, they're just celebrating. When you receive good news about something that your heart is burdened with passion for, an appropriate response to that is, is this NASA-like emotion. The Apostle Paul's heart was tied up and invested in sharing the gospel with people. It flowed out of his own experience of grace in Jesus that he had encountered on the road to Damascus where Jesus had had a conversation with Paul that had radically transformed his heart from, from a rebel whose life was committed to removing the message and the story of Jesus out of culture, out of the landscape to someone who now knew the only hope for culture, the only hope for people was the message of Jesus. 
And one of the cultures that Paul had conversations with about Jesus was the Thessalonians. When Paul rolled into this city, it was a, it was a mix of, of pagan kind of self-discovery where you're ultimately your own God, where you control your own self-actualization and, 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 a, and a fear-based religious legalism. That was the melting pot that Paul came into. And Paul shares the story of Jesus, about Jesus, who frees people from both of these um, enslaving insecurities by the promise of God found in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, approval, deep heart transformation of faith that's found in Jesus. It all goes well. The local culture controllers organise a systematic smear campaign against Paul. And they run him out of town. They publicly humiliate and punish anyone who's connected to Paul there in Thessalonica. This story of Jesus, this great story of Jesus into that culture was met with a great deal of adversity as it is today because it disrupts cultural norms and complacency. Nevertheless, some people have begun a faith in Jesus. Well, earlier on in this letter, uh, we read that, that Paul's heart for the Thessalonians had become overwhelmed with con- concern for their, their spiritual welfare. And so he's sent uh, Timothy Titus back to see them. Paul's very life is tied up with the spiritual welfare of these Thessalonians. We get that out of the concern that soaks this passage. Paul says, so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to, to be left at, by ourselves in Athos and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith. Paul's concern for the Thessalonians stems out, stems out of the fact that, that, that there is this new little church plant, this new little community of, of Christians trying to live in this hostile Environment and he's had to leave prematurely because they're going to beat the living suitcase out of him if he stays. We read the story in Acts 17. The account of Paul just sharing this story of Jesus at Thessalonica and how it turned this whole city into uproar and how he had to leave for fear of his life. It is meant that this fledgling little church has been left alone to face the hostile environment of, of jealous uh, Jewish religious leaders of intolerant uh, Roman politics and a very uh, pervasive and persistent Greek culture of self-discovery. You know, you, you, you just, whatever goes, just enjoy yourself to the max. It's a tough culture for a little church to survive in. It's a tough culture for Christians to survive in. So Paul fears the worst. In verse 5, he reveals his great fear. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. The way it's written betrays that Paul has in his heart almost conceded that it's very unlikely that the Thessalonians have continued in their faith. And he feels the weight of that failure, not merely at a level of pride, but a heart just aching for people. Paul loves these people. He's sat with them. He's had conversations with them. He's spoken to them about Jesus and they've invited him into his life, into their lives. And we don't often see Paul in this light, this vulnerable light. 
Here's a guy who's a hero of the Christian faith and mission. He's an icon of what it means to be sold out for the gospel. Takes a Canaan after Canaan for a tough man. Writes things like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And he is despairing and he is shattered to contemplate that the consequences of overwhelming cultural pressure could kill off the continued grace of the gospel in people's lives. So now in this passage he needs good news from Timothy, but he fears the worst. And Paul is actually at at this point sitting in Corinth, wondering if all the blood and the sweat and the tears has just turned to dust or whether it's actually borne fruit. We're given a glimpse of how Paul was feeling at this stage as he recounts the beginning of his work in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. As he rolls into, into Corinth, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Paul is enduring his own personal seven minutes of terror. As he waits for the news from Timothy about the folks at Thessalonica, Except his terror, his his waiting would have lasted months. Timothy, who he's sent off, has to cover a lazy 750 kilometres. And he doesn't have an iPhone. He can't just kind of hit up Paul on Instagram or WhatsApp, bang out a tweet going, hey, it's all good, genuine faith and love found up here in Thessalonica. So Paul waits. Fearing the worst, but still carrying out his life's work of speaking the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. This is not a faith crisis here. Paul knows who he is and what he does, but his heart is burdened for the people of Thessalonica that they would know Jesus, that they would continue to know Jesus, that they would experience the change of life and the ongoing fullness of life that he experiences in Christ. An experience that Paul sums up in in a little sentence that says to to know Christ is to live like there's nothing else. I can see Paul just sitting in his workshop down in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila working on some old bit of leather when a familiar figure comes into the frame down the end of the street. It's Timothy and Silas. They're back. What to do? Run and meet his dear friends, or wait for the inevitable. Paul has sent Timothy on, on, on many such trips. We read about him in 1 Corinthians and Philippians and 2 Timothy. Timothy is Paul's go-to man. But none of those journeys were charged with as much emotion as this one. Paul and the team had a fair bit riding on hearing good news from Thessalonica. Had the faith of these people survived the harsh in environment had the faith of these people survived the harsh atmosphere of the city or would paul's heart in sorrow be torn this is the kind of trauma that comes on a heart when it's invested into the lives of others into the lives of our neighbors when we've spent time to sit with people and share the story of god's love in jesus The news could not have been better. And it's hard to describe the unbridled joy that filled Paul. Like a bunch of crazy NASA engineers, Paul explodes with gladness 
But Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought good news about your faith and love. And this is the only time in the New Testament that Paul uses the phrase good news and it's not directly associated uh, with the content and the effect of the gospel and the work of Christ and its saving power. Normally the gospel is described as good news. That people are standing firm in their faith in a culture of opposition to Paul is good news. A phrase that he is only ever attached to the story of Jesus. It's quite astonishing for Paul to describe Timothy's report this way in such life-giving tones. But to hear that the Thessalonians had not been overcome by the work of the devil, but rather Timothy reports of their faith and love, which is the distinctive characteristics of those who are, who are true members of uh, the redeemed community, who, who, who are true Christians, who are going on in their faith. It represents, this, this faith and love represents the sum total of godliness and genuine faith. It's a shorthand term that Paul likes to use. Paul could not have hoped for better news, but it gets better. Not only are the Thessalonians uh, cracking along with sound doctrine and great practice, the church is alive, but they also remember Paul with deep affection. They long to see Paul just as he longs to see them. For Paul, this is a veritable good news, a gospel of sorts. While Paul preaches a gospel of faith in Christ, the testimony of the faith of the Thessalonians has preached of God's continuing saving power, has preached to Paul's own heart about the goodness of God, the saving power of God to to remain and keep people in their faith. This is a real NASA moment for Paul. The lid comes off and Paul pours out his heart. Paul can't contain his joy and he now wants to let the Thessalonians know that their faith has been in a blessing and encouragement to him. For like them, Paul has known adversity, distress and persecution. But hearing that they are standing firm in the Lord strengthens him. It's an extraordinary statement that Paul uses to describe the impact of this news. He now says, now now we really live. It's kind of when we looked at Galatians and he said, uh, but, your, but your faith, seeing you guys in your faith completes our story. The news that the Thessalonians had maintained their faith despite a cultural persecution that we would read in um, Thessalonians 2.14. And in the face of what he describes as satanic attacks is more than just a good result for Paul and his ministry team. Paul characterises this kind of news as life-giving. I've got to ask you a question. Just pause for a little bit. Where does, where does our lives touch down like this? Where does your life touch down like this? Or connect with the stories and lives of others like this? Every Sunday we walk in here, every Sunday you walk in here and I think to myself, faith and love against a hostile culture. And it just warms my heart, gladdens my soul. I mean, do you, do you feel that? 
Is this your experience of church? Like as we come together, as we see brothers and sisters in Christ, against all the odds we come in here with the same story and we're still persisting in faith? Like that's one of the uh, objectives, one of the, 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 the purposes of church is to warm your heart as you look around and you see brothers and sisters who would have been natural born enemies connected and united in Christ and we're still going despite the adversity despite the harshness of your workplace has our experience of the love of God and Jesus compelled us with the kind of relational concern that Paul has for others so when we hear that they're doing well, we're excited. Paul's life is so bound up, so committed to the well-being of the Thessalonians that it's kind of like he's been holding his breath, ceasing to enjoy life until he hears they are well. Kind of like Brisbane Lions supporters last night, just hoping against hope that uh, they could beat Greater Western Sydney, but unfortunately that didn't happen. Oh, that's good to do with anything. It's, it's, it is news that enabled Paul to go about his work with a renewed vigour and certainty. Doesn't, doesn't when you hear stories of people standing firm in their faith and you get to share that with them, and that kind of that kind of make you feel a little bit more encouraged? Paul's been re-energized by the news that the gospel has taken hold in Macedonia. All his fears have dissolved in the news that God is able and faithful. And his gospel is not a small thing that saves some, but the power of God to just enable and continue faith. I cannot overemphasize just how uplifting this is for Paul and how uplifting this is for us. And we read in Acts 18.5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching and the testifying uh, to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Paul's got his mojo back, if you like. And this time, he just gets up in the grill of the Jews. He's not, he, he's just up and at it. He's feeling emboldened. And he moves with renewed conviction because he realizes that these Jews are not actually rejecting him. They're rejecting God's saving grace. But what Paul has seen is God holds those he saves. And so he's emboldened. By human standards, what has happened is somewhat of a personal triumph for Paul. If he was a NASA engineer, there would be a lot of man-hugging and backslapping. But Paul's not a NASA engineer. He's God's co-worker. And Paul realizes that what has happened was due to the divine power of God in believers. And Paul's almost bereft for words as he contemplates the goodness of God and the power of the gospel. He draws on Psalm 116.12 to assist him in giving thanks to God for his kindness and steadfast faithfulness. How can we thank God enough in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? It's an impossible debt. But that's the nature of God, to give beyond measure. And Paul 
has been granted the desires of his heart that the Thessalonians would be as he in right relationship with God with their brothers and sisters and and namely him. We just see how invested Paul is and how much he considers life to be tied up with the Thessalonians, how, how Paul is just about relationships, about sharing faith with people. He cannot be there with them. So night and day, this thing finishes off, night and day he prays fervently and earnestly. The language is strong and emotional. He has a deep love for them and he wants them to know the love of God. When you're invested into people like this, at this level, you're losing sleep over this situation before God. And the passage rounds out in a further confirmation of Paul's deep pastoral love for this community as he prays for them. He longs to see them. He longs to encourage them in their faith for he knows that the task is far from complete and that God has still more to do in their lives that maybe that they may be found abounding and overflowing in love and strengthened in every aspect of their faith right up to the day where they're face to face with their Saviour and God. Paul's just concerned for people. God was concerned for him. And that love that he's experienced from God now just moves towards everybody. Tell me something, Freeway. Who are the Thessalonians in your life? Who is it that you are so invested to that that not knowing about their spiritual welfare actually keeps you up at night? Actually drives you to your knees in fervent prayer for them. They would either be encouraged in their faith or come to know a faith. Who do you have in your life that you love so dearly that you are continuously in prayer before God about them? Who do you have in your life that, that if you were to hear news of, of faith and love, of genuine faith that had come into their lives, that it would just send you a little bit NASA in your response, cause you to explode with joy, that they were now indeed standing firm in a faith with Jesus? If you're struggling to think, who could it be? Who could I be like with this? Just look around this room. There are dozens and dozens of people here for you to pray for and encourage. Just look around your workplace. Look around your classroom. Look around your sports club. There are literally Thessalonians everywhere that you can invest the story of Jesus into, invest the gospel into. And... and Look up, grab this, not because it's some religious duty, but because it's a relational delight. As we share our faith with people, as we encourage other Christians, we are strengthened up in our own faith. 
And as we get to share the story of Jesus and we see that come alive in other people, are we not reminded of the faithfulness and the goodness of our God? The Christian life is not academic. It's not just some idea. It is a deeply relational uh, story to engage with people. And the question is, who who are we engaging with? Who are we sharing this story with? Who, who, who are we talking to after church? Are we talking about the football and how Melbourne United just destroyed Illawarra the other night? Or are we, are we talking about how Jesus just gets us through the day and strengthens us? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, you're a God who, as you come to us and you make yourself known to us, that this is not a dead, emotionless story. This is not some dry, academic, um, clinical ticking of a box, but it's a deeply relational thing where you, where you come into relationship with us, bring us alive in relationship with you, that we then might in turn uh, go out and into this hostile culture share this story in our workplaces. Uh, in, our, in our sporting clubs or, or wherever it is, but also we get to share that story here amongst ourselves. We get to t- just, no other environment like this where we just get to talk about how good you are to us. Would we just continue to come and be reminded of that? Would we, we just overflow with joy about the fact that we can talk about, like um, Mia, we heard that story little girl who just wants to share Jesus to anyone who stands still long enough while they're reaching for a bottle of sauce. Warm our hearts with affection for you. Strengthen our hearts in the, in, in the confidence of the gospel and enable us to share. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.